0: You may be seated. I invite you to join me now in taking your copy of God's Word or finding a pew Bible and turning with me to our passage for this morning, which is Proverbs chapter 3, verses 13 through 35. So Proverbs 3, 13 through 35. If you've been joining us this summer, you know that we are spending our summer in the study of the book of Proverbs, also known as the book of God's Wisdom. So as we've we've seen now, as we've gotten to chapter 3, the wisdom of Proverbs is pointing us to what is true wisdom. That that's not the wisdom of the world, but it's the wisdom of God. So when we look at the wisdom of the world, what we find is that that wisdom is always changing and evolving because the wisdom of the world is subject to the whims of culture and society. Worldly wisdom cannot stand on its own, does not stand on its own. Worldly wisdom stands hand in hand with current culture, society, and trends. So wherever culture, society, and trends leads, that's where worldly wisdom will lead along with. So to use a biblical illustration, worldly wisdom is like shifting sand. You don't always know where it's going to shift. And if you try to build anything upon shifting sand, it's going to eventually come crumbling down. You can't. Build anything of lasting importance upon it. So, worldly wisdom is never the answer. It will always disappoint, it will always cause our lives to crumble down around us. And so, what the book of Proverbs does is it helps us contrast that with biblical wisdom. And what we find with biblical wisdom is that it is, it is eternal because it's the wisdom of the eternal God. And in eternal, we're not just talking about length of time, we're talking about his unchanging nature. That God is the same yesterday, today, and forevermore. God's wisdom is not predicated upon what the nightly news says. Or which Instagram follower is most important now. And they tell you what to do or TikTok or whatever. It's not built upon uh, culture, society, or trends. God's wisdom stands on its own because it is eternal. It is the foundation of all wisdom. God's wisdom, therefore, is the bedrock. It's the bedrock that we are meant to build our faith and life upon, and we don't have to worry about it shifting or changing. God's wisdom was the same in Genesis 1 that will be at the end of Revelation. It's the same from since time began to when time ends. God's wisdom is eternal. Therefore, it's the wisdom that we should always turn to. We need to know it so that we can follow it. So that brings us to our passage this morning in Proverbs chapter 3. Let we pray for our time together now in God's word. Lord, we thank you that your wisdom is eternal. We look at the wisdom of the world around us and we see how much it changes and it shifts. And we see how much it has ruined lives over generations and time and thousands of years. We thank you that your wisdom is true, as your wisdom is eternal, is trustworthy. And it's what we are meant to build our faith and life upon. So I pray, O Lord, you help us this morning to hear your wisdom in Proverbs chapter 3. May we hear it as your people. May your spirit open our minds and our hearts to it. And may he guide us in our lives being lived by this wisdom. We pray this now in Jesus' name. Amen. Proverbs 3, 13 through 35. Since it is a longer passage and I see a lot of us fanning, uh, we will stay seated this morning. But I invite you to join me now as we read God's word, Proverbs 13, or three verse, chapter 3, verses 13. Blessed is the one who finds wisdom and the one who gets understanding. For to gain from her is better than gain from silver and her profit better than gold. She is more precious than jewels and nothing you desire can compare with her. Long life is in her right hand and in her left hand are riches and honor. Her ways are ways of pleasantness, and all her paths are peace. She is a tree of life to those who lay hold of her, and those who hold her fast are called blessed. The Lord, by wisdom, founded the earth, and understanding, he established the heavens. By his knowledge, the deeps broke open, and the clouds dropped down to dew. My son, do not lose sight of these. Keep sound wisdom and discretion, and they will be life for your soul and adornment for your neck. And then you will walk on your way securely and your foot will not stumble. If you lie down, you will not be afraid. When you lie down, your sleep will be sweet. Do not be afraid of sudden terror or of the ruin of the wicked when it comes. For the Lord will be your confidence and will keep your foot from being caught. Do not withhold good from those to whom it is due when it is in your power to do it. Do not say to your neighbor, go and come again, tomorrow I will give it when you have it with you. Do not plan evil against your neighbor who dwells trustingly beside you. Do not contend with a man for no reason when he has done you no harm. Do not envy a man of violence, and do not choose any of his ways. For a devious person is an abomination to the Lord, but the upright are in his confidence. The Lord's curse is on the house of the wicked, but he blesses the dwelling of the righteous. Towards the scorners he is scornful, but to the humble he gives favor. The wise will inherit honor, but the fools get disgrace. The grass withers and the flowers fade, but the word of our God stands forever. Amen. When we go buy something, especially a large purchase, we like to find a good deal, don't we? We go to buy a new car, or go buy a house. Or maybe we're looking to book that dream vacation. We want to find that good deal. We long when we go to the, to the car lots and we find that new car we really have been wanting. And we look at the price tag and we go, wow, that's a really good deal. Or maybe you have to buy a used car and you find the one you're looking for. It has low mileage and you have to look twice at it because it is such a good deal in the price. Or you want to buy a house. Realistically, not HGTV buying a house where you have $25,000 worth of income and you can afford a $5 million house. Right? But realistically, you go out and you're looking to buy a house and you find one that's right there in your budget. You can afford that mortgage payment every month and it has all the land or, or, or right in the neighborhood that you wanna live in. Or maybe you're planning that dream vacation you want to go on a cruise, you find the cruise you've been looking for, and they're having a deal on the cruise package that's right up your alley. We get excited when we find good deals on that, as well as we should. But then there's occasions where we not only find it's a good deal, but they're going to sweeten the package for us. Not only can we afford a new car, but they're going to give us all these free upgrades, right? You're not going to have to pay for the mats and, and satellite radio in it. Right? You're going to buy that house and they tell you, well, no, I'm glad you're going to buy a house and we're going to pay for a new roof and a new HVAC system. Or you go to get that cruise package and you find that it comes with vouchers for free dinner every night on the ship. It's a good deal already, but it's made even better by the pot being sweetened, so to speak. It's a dream scenario. As we've been studying the book of Proverbs... My prayer that as Christians, we have seen that the wisdom of God is always a good deal for us. It's a good deal because God's wisdom is a wisdom that is life-giving. It's a wisdom that's life-blessing. It's a wisdom that is eternally blessing. Because it's a wisdom that helps us live as Christians. It's a wisdom that helps us grow in faith. It's a wisdom that guides us on the right and good paths. So when we approach the wisdom of God from the posture of faith, and by that posture I mean knowing that because of our sins and sinfulness, we deserve nothing but the wrath of God. Yet through his sovereign grace and mercy, he saves us through faith in Jesus Christ. When that is our posture, then we know that the wisdom of God is a good deal. Because what is it? the creator and sustainer of all things, the savior of his people, the king of kings and the Lord of lords, the one who is most wise is freely sharing his wisdom with us. And not just as general blanketing of wisdom, but a wisdom that targets the areas in our lives that we need that wisdom. We find that's a good deal, isn't it? Now we can struggle with it, we can struggle with embracing this wisdom. We can struggle, struggle with following it, but we find in our hearts and in our minds that we long for this wisdom. We want it more and more so we can follow after it more and more. The wisdom of God is a good deal. And then we come to our passage this morning. We find that he's sweetening the deal for us. as if it's all, As if this isn't wonderful enough, He now offers us even more incentive for us to come, to listen, and to heed his fatherly wisdom that is offered to us. Now, he sweetens the deal by pointing us to the beauty of wisdom. What we find in this passage is an encouragement not only to look at wisdom practically, but to look at the beauty of wisdom. Because the beauty of wisdom is breathtaking. And when we see wisdom in those terms, not just as a practical checklist, but we see it as the beautiful thing it is, it puts us in even more awe of his wisdom we find in the book of Proverbs. But I think in order for us to do this, we have to step back and maybe do some rearranging and refiling in our minds. Because the word beautiful for us is a rather normal word. We can, in a sense, overuse it. It's not used like how it used to be used. It's lost some of his punch over the years. Right, we can call uh, things beautiful, a lot of things beautiful uh, nowadays. Remember when uh, our second child, Hannah, was little and we would drive around town. It doesn't matter what house it was. It would be one of the beautiful older houses. It could be a ramshackle house. But she goes, that house is pretty. That house is pretty. And we're like, maybe she needs glasses because that house is a dump. But we can we can Overused pretty and beautiful. But it used to be that when we describe something as beautiful, it meant something that changed us. Something was beautiful, it was of such a higher, a high standard of of of, of excellence that it, it would change us. When we go back and we read about how that word was used, when something was described as beautiful, it was a person, our, our scenery, a piece of music, our painting, it meant it was beyond the standard of excellence. It wasn't just well done, it wasn't just really well done, it was almost beyond the standard of excellence. And therefore, it had this positive effect on you, it changed you. When you said something was beautiful, it stuck with you. It was burned into your mind and heart. You can never really shake it and how it made you feel. Maybe it was being on that beach in that morning and and seeing the sunrise and there was something about it that just brought tears to your eyes. Or you're in the mountains and you're watching the sunset and you've never seen colors that vibrant and it took your breath away. Or that first time you heard that piece of music and that melody still haunts you to this day. And maybe it's a painting. When you close your eyes, you can still recall all the details. Or laying in the hospital bed and the doctor hands you your baby for the first time and you hold your baby and you look into your child's eyes for the first time. That's beauty. It isn't fleeting. It doesn't go away. It stays with you. It changes you. And that's the beauty of God's wisdom. It's the beauty we find throughout Proverbs and all of Scripture. Because it's the beauty that sticks with you. It's the beauty of wisdom that is burned into our minds and hearts. It's the beauty of wisdom that once you're exposed to it, you know it, you follow it, you are changed. And you can never shake how how much has positively changed your life. So when we're talking about the beauty of God's wisdom, we're talking about something that is almost, in a sense, beyond beautiful. We can't compare it to anything else. And that's the beauty of God's wisdom described in this passage. And it's described in three ways. The first section is that wisdom is personified. And it's personification is beautiful. And the next segment is the beauty of knowing God's wisdom in creation. And then it ends with the beauty of knowing God's wisdom when we live by it. What we're going to do this morning, though, is we're going to jump to that middle section about the beauty of God's wisdom in creation, because God's beauty of wisdom in creation is the foundation of all beauty. Let me read those verses for us again, beginning in verse 19. The Lord, by wisdom, founded the earth. By understanding, he established the heavens. By his knowledge, the deeps broke open and the clouds dropped down the dew. I think often when we when we talk about and we think about God creating, we think about it and we talk about it in terms of His power, because we go to the Book of Genesis and how does God create all things? He spoke it into existence. When God said, "Let there be light," there was light. Right. So we can think about the the power of God in creation. We can think about His creativity, His artistic nature. And when we look at creation around us, we live in a beautiful world. Again, I, I'm fully entrenched in the cult of South Carolina. I don't think there's anything more beautiful than the state of South Carolina, from the mountains down to the coast. We look around us and there's beauty and the creativity of God is evident in creation all around us. We can even go really theological, right, and talk about how uh, the creation story tells us about how our God is a sovereign God and a providential God because only someone who is sovereign and providential can create in such a way. When was the last time we thought about creation and talked about it in terms of God's wisdom? When was the last time we were driving to church or going to Edisto or going to Bon Clark and we looked around and we say, ah, God's wisdom is evident all around us. Yet that's what Solomon is doing here, isn't he? He's talking with his son. He's sharing his God-given wisdom with him. And what does he say? Son, God's wisdom is evident in all creation around us. So this God-given wisdom that Solomon shares is that creation tells us that our God is a wise God. It was his wisdom that produced. All the well-orderedness of the world, of the earth beneath and and the heavens above. It's it's the wisdom of God that is evident in all creation. Now, this runs counter uh, to many popular theories of creation out there that says that there's no God behind it. that, That order came out of chaos, which just goes against the very nature of chaos, but that somehow order came out of chaos and now here's creation. Or or that nothing produced something, as we've talked about before philosophically, that's impossible. If nothing can produce something, then that nothing becomes something. Mathematically, whenever you times any number by zero, you always get zero. Mathematically, when you times the highest number by nothing, you always get nothing. Or that by sheer luck, uh, we emerge out of the primordial goo that was around. But what does Proverbs teach us? God created all things and the tool he used was his wisdom. It was all he needed. The Lord, by wisdom, founded the earth. You know, second commandment tells us we're not to picture God. So I don't want to encourage you to picture God, but I want to encourage you to picture this. Imagine those old metal toolboxes being open. God's creating, he's opened his old metal toolbox and the only tool he takes out is Wisdom. That's the only tool he needed to create everything. So everything in the universe was created by God's wisdom. So when he spoke, let there be light, that's not only just a, a, a statement of power, it's not just a statement of creativity, it is first and foremost a statement of wisdom. The wise God wisely spoke the words of wisdom, let there be light, and power and creativity came from that. So, As we look at the world around us, we look at the stars in the sky and we see those pictures of distant galaxies and solar system, every part of that testifies to the wisdom of God. What is biblical wisdom? What is the beauty of God's wisdom? Is that we see it in nature around us. Now here's the amazing thing to me about this passage. Out of everything Solomon could talk about, Out of all the wonders of the world that Solomon could say to his son, here is the perfect example of God's wisdom in creation. What's the one thing he goes to? Rain. Something so regular, normal, and ordinary to us. But Solomon says, son, look at rain, because this is one of the most perfect examples we have of God's wisdom in nature. Verse 20. By his knowledge, wisdom, the deeps broke open and the clouds dropped down the dew. How in the world does rain speak to the wisdom of God? Well it's right here. The word translated broke open is the same word used in Genesis seven eleven for God's opening the terrestrial source of water. And we know that dew doesn't drop from clouds, so the Hebrew word here referring to it is, is, is rain. How in the world is God's wisdom exemplified in rain? I want to share with you something that John Piper wrote. It's a little bit long, I'll ask you to bear with me. But it's about the process of rain. So maybe a little nerdy, a little school here in the middle of summer, but bear with me. Picture yourself as a farmer in the Near East and you're far from any lake or stream. There's a few wells that keep the family and animals supplied with water, but the crops are to grow and the families to be fed from month to month. You have to have water. It has to come from another source. But where does it come from? Well, it comes from the sky. So water just comes out of the clear blue sky? Well, not exactly. Water has to be carried in the sky from the Mediterranean Sea, which is over several hundred miles away, and then be poured out from the sky into the fields. But carried, how much does it weigh? Well, if one inch of rain falls on one square mile of farmland during the night, that would be 27,878,400 cubic feet of water, which is 206,000, or 206,300,160 gallons, which is 1,650,501,280 pounds of water. It's kind of heavy, isn't it? So how does that heavy of a water get in the sky and stay there? Well, it gets there by evaporation. Well, what's evaporation? Evaporation means that water sort of stops being water for a while so it can go up and not down. Well, how does it get down? Well, that's condensation. Well, what's condensation? Condensation is when the water starts becoming water again by gathering around little dust particles between really small numbers of centimeters wide. Well, what about the salts? Because the Mediterranean Sea is salt water. That would kill the crops. What happens to the salt? Well, the salt has to be taken out. So, the sky picks up a billion pounds of water from the sea. It takes out the salt and then it carries it for 300 miles and then dumps it on the farm. Well, it doesn't really dump it. If it dumped a billion pounds of water on the farm, the wheat would be crushed. So, it picks it up. The sky, the, the sky picks up a billion pounds of water from the sea takes out the salt, carries it for 300 miles, and then dribbles the water down in little drops. And that's rain. Something that is so ordinary and ho home to us. But that's the wisdom of God, even in rain. Even this past week, we got three inches of of rain. Why? Because a thunderstorm was formed in Africa, came off the coast of Africa, became a tropical storm of some sort, came across all the Atlantic, up through the the Gulf, over the panhandle of, of Florida, up through Georgia and over us and dropped three inches of rain upon us. God's wisdom is very much a part of creation. Creation testifies to God's creativity, to his power, to his sovereignty, but it also testifies to his wisdom as well. So, as God's people, when we look around at nature, at creation, we are to see His wisdom in it. Even something as na- na- normal and ordinary, mundane as rain, that may ruin a rain that may ruin our, our, our Friday night at the at the lake, or we don't get to have the party we want to outside. But there's another part of God's wisdom that's testified in creation. And it's the problem of the existence of evil. Because when you go and you study Genesis 1 and 2, at the end of every day, when God was done creating on a day, do you remember what he said? And it was good. That there was no sin in creation. He gets to the end of the sixth day, and he surveys all of it. And he said, it is all very good. So in Genesis 1 and 2, there is no sin, there is no evil. And you get to Genesis chapter 3. And there's the serpent who is Satan. And what happens? Sin enters into the picture. So the question is, where does sin and evil come from? If it's not a part of God's creation, where does it come from? Does God create sin? Does God allow sin? Does God predestine sin? Where does it come from? And that's a wonderful question. It's a very difficult question. It's a difficult one to answer. And there, there are some good answers out there. But I go along to some theologians I trust and I go with the answer of, we don't know. We can't fully answer the ontological problem Of the existence of sin and evil. What we do know is that God is good. And because God is good, sin cannot come from him. We're told in the book of James that he does not tempt us to sin, but he cannot because there is no sin in him. So we can have surety in the goodness of God. But when it comes to the question of the existence of sin and evil, The best answer we can give at times is to shrug our shoulders. Sometimes the best answer we can ever give is to shrug our shoulders. Sometimes the best answer we can give is we just don't know the answer to the question. We don't fully know the answer to the question of where does sin and evil come from? But what we do know is in the creation story in Genesis 3, when sin entered into it, we find the beauty of the wisdom of the gospel. I, I always find it interesting and refreshing that God's first reaction to sin entering into his perfect creation is grace. It's, the grace. it's the grace of the gospel. Everything is good. There's nothing wrong. Satan tempts Eve and tempts Adam. They fall into sin. God comes down to walk with them in the cool of the day. Adam and Eve are hiding away because they're, they're now tainted with sin. They're ashamed of their, of their physical nakedness. They're ashamed of their spiritual nakedness. God calls out for them and he says, what has happened? All this finger pointing goes out, but the story eventually comes out that they've sinned. And do you remember what happens next? God turns to Satan and he pronounces a curse on him. And, and, and the curse at first is physical. There's a serpent. Now, he'll not have to go run on his belly all of his life. But then it gets serious. Because he says, I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your offspring and her offspring. He shall bruise your head and you shall bruise his heel. God's reaction to sin, this brokenness of his people, of his world, is the grace of the gospel. It uh, is the grace of the gospel. There's a redemption from sin. And we know in the fullness of the story that what God is offering up there. It's his own son. The seed of the woman is Jesus Christ. And how does Satan go after his heel? We see him on the cross. So the wisdom of God is to send his son to pay the price for what Adam and Eve did, what they brought into the world, and will now be passed down to all their descendants. Aren't they put in the terms of the book of Proverbs? What God offers is his wisdom incarnate in his son, Jesus Christ. That's God's reaction to sin in this world. And to me, that's amazing. Because I'll tell you, one of my faults as a a parent, which are many, but when my children disobey me, 99% of the time, I'm often angry. My first reaction isn't grace. My first reaction is anger. But what's God's first reaction? He walks into the garden, His perfect garden. And he sees his perfect creation in Adam and Eve. And it's it's like parents coming home at the end of a weekend and their kids have thrown this rager of a party and everything is thrashed, right? And that's what God is seeing spiritually. Everything is now tainted with sin. And what's God's reaction? Adam and Eve, y'all have messed up. You've messed up more than you realize. I'm going to take care of it. You're guilty, but I'm going to send someone who will take all your guilt for this. Not only is God going to send someone to clean up their mess, he was going to send his own son. So here in Genesis 3, we have this first promise of redemption from our sins through the person, work, and life of the second person of Trinity, who is Jesus Christ. This is why it's called the proto It's the first promise of the gospel. And this goes back to something we talked about several months ago, and that's the covenant redemption. That before the beginning of time, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit made a covenant to save their people from their sins. And the covenant was this, the father would plan redemption and in his plan would send the son in order to save his people. And the son agreed to be sent and to do the work necessary to save his people. And the spirit agrees to apply the work of Christ to us by sealing us unto salvation. And that's what God promises in Genesis chapter three. As he looks around at all this mess, he says, I will take care of this. I have planned your redemption. My son is going to come and accomplish this redemption and the spirit will apply this redemption. But this is a promise not only in words, but it's a promise in action. Do you remember what God does next? He goes and he takes innocent animals and he sacrifices them. These animals haven't sinned. They've done nothing. They've done nothing wrong. But God goes and takes them and sacrifices them to take their skins, their fur, to cover up the sinful shame of Adam and Eve. The innocent blood being shed to cover the sins of God's people. And that's the wisdom of the gospel at creation. And that's the beauty of of the wisdom of God creation. We don't know fully why sin and evil exists, but we see the beauty of God's wisdom and applying the gospel to it from the very first moment of it. And that's that's the beauty of the gospel, that from the beginning, it was there. God didn't walk in the front door and go, "Uh uh-oh, what's going on? This wasn't his plan B. This was always a part of his plan for his people. That he so loves us that the gospel was in place before Genesis 1 1 ever took place. And that's beautiful, isn't it? That's above the standard of excellence. That's a beauty that changes us eternally. To know that you are so loved that the gospel is in place for you since before the beginning of time. Before Adam and Eve ever fell in the garden, God had the gospel in place. So by the time we were born some 2,000 years later, or no, sorry, much later now, 2,000 years from Jesus, much later from, from, from creation, and God knew every sin we would commit from our very first cry. And the gospel was there for us. That God so loved you that the gospel has always been there. And that's beautiful, isn't it? We are out of time this morning. I know I'm going to get y'all home to get something to eat before we come back for VBS. So next week we'll come back to this passage and look at the beauty of wisdom personified. And the beauty of walking in God's wisdom. But let me encourage you. As you go out. Look at creation around you. Think about how it testifies God's wisdom to you. But even more so, think about the beauty of the gospel. how it testifies of God's wisdom for you. Let's pray together.